Welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor. On this week's podcast, I'll be talking to the scientist and theologian Andrew Davison about Stephen Hawking. I'll also be talking to our columnist Paul Vallely about Pope Francis's first five years. If you don't already subscribe to the Church Times, you can get 10 issues for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. Professor Stephen Hawking died in the early hours of Wednesday morning at the age of 76. In our comments section this week, the Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and Natural Sciences at Cambridge, Canon Andrew Davison, reflects on Hawking's scientific achievements and the challenges he posed to theology. I spoke to Andrew Davison to find out more. Stephen Hawking really was an iconic figure. I know that that can sound a bit of a cliche, but he was the iconic scientist uh, in our uh, recent generation. In terms of his science, he, he worked particularly on situations where they seem to defy the application of the laws of physics as we know them. So, for instance, on black holes, where he did really important work, and on the earliest moments of the universe, moments of unbelievable, in fact, according to the predictions, uh, infinite density. And he was interested in those sorts of situations where the laws that we understand nature by are, um, are kind of breaking down. And he's particularly interested in the ways in which the different forces of nature, which look to us in our everyday experience as being separate under these conditions, would start to merge. And that's part of this quest for underlying account of the laws of physics, where what seem to be different perspectives actually turn out to be aspects of the same thing. And you're also right that he was a, an active campaigner on a range of topics. Yes, he was very much a campaigner. And we might think, particularly in recent years, of his work to advocate the National Health Service. He was certainly not afraid to get into quite public spats uh, with people. And he was a great defender of the of the National Health Service. But also, uh, right back through his life, uh, he was a campaigner. I think we think of the things in, in recent years, health service um, and climate change, for instance. But he was very active in questions of, of war and disarmament, for instance. He really did um, embody that idea of the public intellectual who takes a stand on questions outside their own particular area of research. I mean, a lot of the commentary and obituaries since he died, it was, um, it's been remarked upon that obviously he was diagnosed with motor neuron disease and far outlived the expectations of, of medics. Would some see his life almost as miraculous? Well, I think it was known from reasonably early on that the form of motor neuron disease he had was particularly slow progressing. And you, you see that in photographs of him over the course of um, actually half a century, 50 years he lived with it. Part of, of his appeal and his authority uh, was the way in which he lived with this disease with, with such dignity. And uh, in fact, in that respect, he probably belongs in the public ima imagination somewhat alongside uh, Pope John Paul II, uh, as someone who uh, was so active and speaking with such authority out of a, a position of, of illness and suffering. And you, you write in your piece that his authority was not simply his own, it was the authority of science. Could you say a bit more about that? Well, it does strike me that he illustrates the authority of science in our own age, and that therefore he wasn't just speaking as an intellectual, but as a scientist, and then not in fact just as a representative of any science, but of physics, of cosmology, uh, which has this reputation as of being sort of most fundamental science, or perhaps it just uh, enjoys the reputation of being particularly difficult. So 
I think that, yes, part of his authority came from his own situation and his courage and his, um, his struggle with, with illness. But also, I think it came uh, from his position as as a scientist. You know, you see that particularly with with his book, A Brief History of Time, which was in the bestseller list for longer than uh, any other book, certainly any other uh, non-fiction book. But I think it even triumphed over Harry Potter in the end. That being a sort of iconic book of of our generation, of the book that everybody wanted to to own and perhaps we ought to say to be seen to, to own as well there's some a fascinating work done um, recently though now, now that we have e-readers um, and people are downloading books there's all this uh, hidden data about how far people have actually read through a book you know, and it uh, turns out that on average uh, people only got seven percent of the way through a, a brief history so uh, it was certainly a book everyone wanted to own i think representing this sense that um, to be a, a learned, you know, cultured person uh, in the late 20th century, 21st century, uh, has this, this new sense of being up to date with science. But whether people actually uh, got that far through, I don't know. I, I think his, his more recent work, um, The Grand Design, for instance, although I think it actually is theologically a bit more uh, problematic, is, is an easier book to read than A Brief History of Time, which you know, is tricky. And did you sense in some of Hawking's earlier work, like A Brief History of Time, he was more open to questions of faith or the existence of God than he was later on in a book like The Grand Design? Well, there is definitely a difference to be noticed between those two books. Um, a Brief History of Time ends on uh, more or less the, uh, the penultimate page with this wonderful question, which uh, gets quoted a great deal. Now, what is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? Why does the universe go to the bother of existing? So he has a sense there that after a scientist has done all that they might do to describe the laws of physics, there's still the question of why is there anything for them to apply to? Now, um, I don't think uh, that this, it's a perfect book from a theological perspective. I mean, he goes on to say, well, perhaps God who, who creates the universe, he then goes on not very long afterwards to ask, but who created God, uh, which perhaps is not a, a question that would make very much sense within the theological um, tradition. But yeah, there certainly seems to be an openness and a sense of that which lies beyond the limits of uh, physics in that earlier book, uh, A Brief History of Time. But when we get to the grand design of, um, of 2010, um, his position, I think, had, had, had hardened um, a fair bit, um, and he really doesn't seem to have any place uh, for God uh, and I, I think doesn't show that willingness to observe a sort of disciplinary boundary between his own field um, and theology. You, you, you write that he oversteps a barrier and writes about theological matters without having read what theologians actually say. Well, yes, he does have um, really quite a triumphalistic vision of the potential of physics. Uh, in that particular book. So he says there are all these questions that used to be posed to philosophers. I suppose you could say they're also posed to theologians. What's the nature of reality? Did the universe need a creator? Where does it all come from? Uh, and he says really quite boldly there, he's writing with a colleague, um, he says, philosophy is dead. Philosophy has not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly uh, yes. physics. And so scientists have become the, the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. So really... Uh, quite a bold statement there that um, physics is setting the running when it comes to understanding even those sorts of questions that previously had gone to philosophers and theologians. 
And I think, you know, with the greatest respect for his uh, prominence in science, and also, I have to say, great respect for the, the sorts of causes that he um, put up for, uh, I think that there is really a sense of overreach here. And you, you, you almost see that quite helpfully, really, in the way in which he goes on to talk about uh, the nature of creation uh, and the nature of God and the relation of God to creation, showing that uh, having praised himself, really, of what Christian and uh, also Jewish Islamic uh, thoughts about creation, creation out of nothing, are really saying. So I think a, a good example of, of someone who's tremendously eminent in one domain perhaps uh, not being uh, really put in the, the work to try to understand another field that he, he's wanting to address. I mean, just briefly, what, what is it that Christian theology is saying that, that Hawking didn't quite get? Well, I think he puts too much emphasis on the idea of a, of a temporal beginning. Now, it's certainly true that when the Big Bang was first proposed as a model in the early 20th century, it was not received uh, particularly warmly from uh, atheist perspective. The assumption, an enlightenment assumption had been of an eternal universe um, that they thought sort of put God a little bit out of the picture. The idea of the universe having a, a beginning, that time only going back so far, uh, seemed to have quite a lot of theological freight. But it's interesting that um, Lemaitre, who was a Catholic priest who'd been importantly involved in uh, posing the Big Bang, wanted to be sort of agnostic on that question, really. He thought that the question of God's relation to the universe couldn't be uh, proven one way or another by, by the physics. So I think we can get quite invested in the idea that um, the universe points to God because it had a temporal beginning. Uh, and then Hawking's work, which is quite complicated, but, you know, truly remarkable and fascinating, even if, I suppose, still quite conjectural, uh, gives us a sense of a universe which isn't eternal, but likewise doesn't have a, a beginning in time. The kind of very concept of time sort of dissolves uh, towards uh, the very beginning. So he says in the, in the Great Design, well, if you thought that, uh, and he presumes Christian theologians do think this way, if you thought that you needed God at the beginning, to, as he says, uh, knock the train along the track, or we might think, you know, flick the first domino. Uh, you know, the news is then we don't need God after all because uh, there isn't that initial moment. But in actual fact, Christian theologians have tended to want to put the stress much more on the idea that, that creation is about the whole of reality at every moment coming to us from God rather than any particular, you know, moment of creation in, in the past. In a sense, uh, the real question is, why is there anything rather than nothing? And, uh, you know, and, and God being the one that that points to. And that would be as true for an eternal universe or a universe like Hawking's that didn't have a beginning as it as it would be for one that had a beginning in time. Uh, so I think actually, in a sense, he does us, he does uh, theology a bit of a favor, really, in in reminding us that we shouldn't be looking for uh, God or God's role towards the universe as being just kind of there in some initial moment. I suppose really he, he confuses Christianity for something like deism, the God who gets things going and then departs, whereas actually the Christian vision is of, of the world intimately being suspended from the, the, the gift of God at every moment. And for a really good example of this, this idea that it's not really about a temporal beginning at all, we have a wonderful discussion of creation from... Uh, from Aquinas in the middle of the 13th century, where he says that to really get down to the definition of what we mean by creation, we're talking about the relatedness 
of all things at all moments to God as their source, plus, he says, an inception, you know, a beginning of time. Uh, but then almost immediately afterwards, he says, although actually the really important thing is the relatedness to God as their source. And that could be combined with an inception to time or not. Um, so he's actually um, has some rather interesting sort of empirical things to say about this. He's writing in the high Middle Ages and he thinks that there was just no way physically to know whether the universe would have a beginning or not. You, you couldn't prove that. He said now that he thinks that he knows the universe had a beginning from scriptural revelation, but you couldn't tell it from the from the signs of his day, which uh, uh, distinguishes him actually from some of his uh, contemporaries who either thought that the universe had to be eternal because Aristotle had said so, or that it couldn't possibly be eternal because the Bible suggested otherwise. Uh, and Thomas, I think, takes a really sort of intellectually responsible position there by saying, well, we have theological reasons to suppose it isn't, but from from philosophy, from physics, um, it could be. And he says it really just doesn't make any difference to the theologian when, in terms of the doctrine of creation, whether the universe had a beginning or not, because even a universe without a beginning would still not be able to give an account of its own existence. Even such a universe uh, would still uh, have to would, would point towards God and things either give an account of their own being or they get their being from something else. And only God uh, doesn't rely on something else. Everything else derives its being from God. So Hawking's model of the universe, which is, as I say, so fascinating because it doesn't it isn't eternal, but neither does it have a, a beginning in time. I think squares uh, without any trouble at all with this uh, Christian vision of uh, creation being mainly about you know, where do things come from, where what, why do they exist at all, not not uh, being a question of temporal beginnings. In fact, I think we can always we can almost think about what the cosmologist is doing in thinking about these uh, models of the early universe as being an exercise in us looking back towards the beginning and seeing almost what creation out of nothing looks like from the inside. Tuesday was the fifth anniversary of the election of Pope Francis. Church Times columnist Paul Vallely is the author of the acclaimed biography Pope Francis, Untying the Knots, published by Bloomsbury. I spoke to Paul about the Francis Revolution. Could you take us back five years ago to the announcement that Bergoglio would be the next Pope? There was a great deal of surprise, I think, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. Uh, when uh, the Cardinal came out uh, onto the balcony for the famous Habemus Papam, we have a Pope announcement, and he said uh, Bergoglio, or he said Bergoglio, which is the way the Italians pronounce it, and everybody thought, who's he? He must be some kind of obscure Italian Cardinal, and people started... Uh, looking him up, oh no, but he's the bloke from uh, Buenos Aires. There was the the internet was was full of people saying, "Who's he? Who's he?" Uh, and nobody really knew. And, and the instant searches that people did on the internet uh, came up with the idea that he was a um, a, a, a right wing conservative from uh, um, from Argentina, which is uh, not uh, not proved to be the case. And then you write in your piece to, for us this week um, that Pope Francis has made some seismic changes over the past five years but some people are, mi are missing this you say there are a few cliches that are mistaken about pope francis what are they well i i did a radio interview this week and the interviewer said oh well you know pope francis uh, he, he's a a great liberal pope isn't he and i said whoa 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 you know um he's not liberal actually uh, people uh, think he's liberal because he's kind of open-minded and feels progressive 
but that's because of his kind of warmth and his smile and his is the the way that he kind of puts people before before rules. But when you actually look at what he says about the rules, about the doctrine, it's 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 all pretty much in line with his predecessors. And on all the big hot button issues uh, like abortion and women priests and so forth, he he takes exa- exactly the same line. So in one sense, he's a he's a conservative rather than a liberal. But he's he's a genuine Catholic in that he embraces, you know, all of this. What's different about him is his style, not his doctrinal adherence. You, you talk about the Francis Revolution in the piece. What's at the, the heart of that? Well, the Francis Revolution is about putting people before rules. He's a he's a, a man who thinks that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The last two popes, if you look at them, uh, John Paul was a philosopher, a very charismatic but hard line in his philosophy. Benedict was a theologian, much more gentle character, but, you know, immersed in the world of theology. Uh, this pope, uh, he spent his whole life as a pastor, uh, working with the poor in the slums. And, uh, uh, you know, he's a man who used to stew his uh, chauffeur-driven car and go around on the, on the, on the bus and on the, the underground. Uh, he's a man of the people. And, and he relates to the person in front of him before all else. He's got one of his, he's got four maxims. One of them is, realities are greater than ideas. Now, you couldn't imagine a philosopher or um, a theologian saying that, but a pastor, yeah, that's, that, that's what this pope is. And he's brought this pastoral uh, approach to, to, to the whole way of being, being pope and, 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 and by implication of being a Catholic and a Christian, where, you know, John Paul was known for wagging his finger at priests kneeling on the tarmac. This pope opens his his arms for an embrace and smiles all the time and radiates warmth. One of his key documents was called The Joy of the Gospel, and that's it. He thinks it's a joy and he, he wants to spread the joy. And, and when he's asked to comment on perhaps, you know, um, communion for divorcees or um, gay people in the church, he's, as a pastor, do you think he's thinking of people first before doctrine? Even if he's not changing the doctrine, he's still thinking, how will my words be received by yeah. people. I mean, when 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 he was asked about the gay priest, uh, he came up with what are probably the most the famous most famous phrase of his papacy. Who am I to judge? And a lot of people thought, well, you're supposed to be the pope. You're you know, you, that's your job being a judge. And he said, no, that is not the job of the pope. That is one way of being pope. But it's not the way I want. Uh, the pope has been too monarchical, judgmental in the past. And, and he needs to communicate the, the message of the gospel in a different way. So who am I to judge? It's, a, it's, an, it's an open-minded thing. It's a question. Who am I to judge? It's not saying, uh, let's change the rules on, on gays or whatever. He's just saying, let's be more open in our approach to them. And the same with, with communion for divorced remarried Catholics. He's not saying, yep, that's okay. They can all do that. He's, he's, he's said in, a, in a, he, he's kind of opened the door a crack to say it's possible in certain circumstances that divorced and remarried Catholics could take communion. But those very specific circumstances will be up to two other key things in his um, in, in his papacy. Discernment, which is the Jesuit term for kind of spiritually looking inside yourself and trying to strip away what your own interests are and find out what God really wants of you. And, and accompaniment, which is that priests have to smell of the sheep. They have to be with their flock. They have to accompany them on the journey through the d- difficulties of daily life. So discernment and accompaniment are what should decide whether or not people uh, can take uh, a communion, because a lot of second marriages are are loving marriages, uh, which replaced fairly toxic marriages or abusive marriages 
in the first place. And so he's saying that the the doctrine of the indissolubility of marriage is not um, um, uh, being challenged, but that the church should be more open in the way in which it, it relates to people. And maybe it's possible for people to take communion in a situation which is not part of what the church regards as the ideal. And what about those who say that he's sowing confusion? And, um, you know, a lot of lay Catholics are saying we're looking for direction, but we get these sort of vague pronouncements which can be interpreted in different ways and it, and it creates uncertainty. Well, a lot of that depends on whether you, uh, whether you think that uh, the church is about rules or, or whether it's it's about the the wider message of Jesus on on changing the way we we relate to one another. So the idea of being a servant of of being uh, uh, self sacrificing that that kind of that kind of notion is is embracing and inclusive and and outgoing. And and so people who hark back yearn for the old with nostalgia for the old uh, certainties of if you do this you'll be all right and if you don't do that then you'll be in sort of trouble. Yeah, they find this pope confusing. But confusion is a kind of code word that they use for, you know, we don't agree with him, really. He's not confusing at all. He's saying the rules are clear, but uh, we're we're all on a journey and we're progressing towards um, an ideal embrace of the rules. But on that journey, we're imperfect. We may have to make compromises and priests have to help. Or the, the the rest of the of the of, of the uh, population the, the the laity on that journey not place obstacles but open doors. I mean the Pope's been very warm towards I mean the Archbishop of Canterbury and and other denominations towards the Church of England and other denominations. I mean, has he been a much more ecumenical Pope? Do you think than previous pontiffs? Yes, it's not something that he kind of headlines. Uh, and that he talks about a lot, but he, he practices it. And he did this when he was in Argentina. Uh, he had great relations with other other churches. When the Vatican issued a hardline statement about uh, women priests in, in the Anglican Communion and how this had estranged uh, the two churches, he contacted uh, his Anglican equivalent and said, look, uh, we, we don't get too upset about this. We carry on with our good relations. We would rather you were good um, Anglicans than that you became Catholics. Uh, he, that kind of openness he showed to the Jewish community, the Muslim community, and to um, uh, wi- wider um, Christian denominations, the, the Orthodox and, and so forth. They've all, he, he's always had a kind of very uh, open relationship with them, uh, with um, Pentecostalists, uh, uh, although he was suspicious of them early in his life, he came around to seeing that they were just a different way of, of of approaching God, charismatic, uh, evangelical. Uh, you know, he 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 embraced all of these people uh, as uh, an archbishop, and he's carried on with that really as pope. When he went to Jerusalem, he 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 went with a a rabbi and an imam uh, who were two of his close friends from from Argentina. He took them with him on his personal pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So he just he just does it. Without 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 making a fuss, he's he's kind of it's it's action, not words. You're also right that he's he's a reforming pope. He's reforming Vatican finances, changing the way the church makes decisions. Does that indicate a certain ruthless determination and steel underneath the pastoral warmth? Well, I mean, he 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 did a lot of work really, um, with the uh, the Argentinian diocese uh, in reforming finances there. So people knew when they elected him that he had this capability and he made a lot of changes in the Vatican Bank and in the um, uh, the, the, the whole way that uh, the Vatican uh, held, managed its finances. I mean he introduced you know budgets. Can you believe that they didn't have budgets? People used to just spend money 
and uh, he's introduced in a, a, an auditor general. He reformed the Vatican Bank quite uh, radically. He's hit a lot of obstacles. There, there have been people in and out of the Vatican Bank because some of the people proved not to be kind of completely on the reform agenda. Uh, the, the main engine of his financial reforms was Cardinal Pell, who then became embroiled in um, uh, in uh, answering allegations of uh, of him being involved in the cover up of sex abuse in Australia. And he's had to go back to Australia. So all of it is stalled a bit. But it's 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 all, he's already made huge, huge steps forward. He's kind of dragged the Catholic Church into the 20th century. It's not quite in the 21st yet. You mentioned the other thing about changing the way that it, the, the church makes decisions. That's more radical really because it goes to the to the root of the theology of it he's a great advocate for the second vatican council he wants to implement decisions of the council which he felt were were delayed under under john paul and benedict uh where there was a tendency to wind back the council uh, and one of the key things is that he wants to encourage debate in the church so you know in in the past People who disagreed with uh, with the Pope were, were branded dissenters and sometimes investigated and, and silenced. Uh, under this Pope, uh, as you were saying, he's, he's got lots of critics, but he says, that's great, you know, uh, bring it on. It's, it's all healthy debate. It's not dissent. The whole monarchical basis of the Vatican, where the decisions come from top down, he wants to change that. That's why he went through such an elaborate process with the, with the Synod. He wants to re-empower uh, the bishops in the church. He wants national conferences of bishops across the world to, to look at things like uh, translations of the liturgy. These things shouldn't be done in Rome. All of these big decisions shouldn't just be made by the magisterium, he says. So that kind of decentralization is, is, is deeply theological, not just an administrative change. And what do you think the next five years or beyond has in <laughs> store for the Pope? Well, he's hit a bit of a he's hit a bit of a stall on two things. He, he's rather he's rather messed up on on sex abuse uh, and dealing with the, the way that the church handles the cover ups of sex abuse. Um, I suspect it's just not been very high up on his radar. But he he because he, he, he shoots from the hip, he made statements like, oh, well, you know, uh, no one's ever complained about this. And people said, well, hang on a minute. No, what do you mean no one's ever complained about this? This particular case was was a, a case of a bishop in Chile who uh, has been accused of covering up for sex abuse. And the Pope ignored complaints about that and made and promoted this man. The uh, people said, well, we did give you a letter about all this. We handed it to you. And of course, it was one of these things with people in position of Pope. Um, or, or, or prime minister or whatever, they get handed letters and they pass it over to some sidekick who didn't didn't read it and uh, tell the Pope about it. So he's making statements like nothing's happened on this when 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 in fact it has. And and he really needs to 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 get a grip on uh, on sex abuse. He's got this sex abuse commission, but he's lost the four key members who were the most effective people in it. Two of them resigned, the two survivors, because they were so. Uh, disappointed with the lack of progress and two of them haven't been reappointed after the, the three-year term came to an end so uh, there's a sense that that uh, has been let, allowed to slip and that there are vested interests in the vatican who are maneuvering and outmaneuvering the pope on 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 this area and then the other area where he's he's he slipped up is uh, the issue of women in the church uh, he keeps saying things like we need a new theology of women but he doesn't really know what what he knows what the problem is, that, that women feel, um, as Mary McAleese, the Irish president, said, you know, they feel there's a virus of misogyny still within the church and they're leaving in droves. But, but whenever he says, well, what can we do about it? He appoints a few more women to the International Theological Commission or, or he set up a, a commission to see if uh, women could be restored to the diaconate, which uh, uh, has been... Um, uh, 
a big step, but, you know, it, he said it over a year ago, we haven't heard anything from it. So there's a sense of no progress on that. And there's a sense of, of kind of philosophical incompatibility. He's an old, uh, eight year old Latin American from a, a, you know, macho culture. And then his idea of being nice to women is to say that they're the strawberries on the cake. Uh, or that, uh, you know, don't they arrange the flowers wonderfully? And uh, where would I have been without my mum and my grandma? Uh, and he doesn't have any understanding of, of, of anything other than the idea that, yeah, well, women may be equal, but they're different, aren't they? And the women are saying, look, you know, that, that's not good enough in this day and age. And he doesn't know how to go forward on that. And I would say the other area where he, where he should uh, look at some kind of reform is on uh, the administration of, of the Vatican. Someone suggested he should introduce a rule whereby you do five years in the Vatican and then you have to go off and be a parish priest again. So uh, that would that would change the culture and it would make it less careerist and, and less open to kind of the factional manoeuvring, which happens in the Vatican at the moment. So he looks fit and healthy. There's no reason why we shouldn't have another five years for him. And uh, in my view, that would be a jolly good thing. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.